Okay, so in 2012, in January of 2012, a Italian cruise line ship, the Costa Concordia, was um, coming up on the shore of Tuscany and struck a rock, and it sunk. And it was a big story all over the news, but about 30 or more people actually died. But the story that reverberated for the following weeks after the event happened was the fact that the captain had abandoned ship before everyone had gotten off. And that the survivors noted that men were pushing women and children to get on the lifeboats to get off in time. And it was universally condemned by every newspaper that reported on the story. Uh, people were in shock. And there was one particular article, I think in the New York Post, which is always such a tabloidy newspaper, especially if you're from New York you read it, but it had like a picture of the Titanic and the thought was, what would the Titanic movie have been like, right, if Jack had thrown Rose over and <laughs> taken that piece of the ice for himself, right? People were horrified. What, what has happened to men that they would abandon the women and children on this boat to save their own lives? As Providence would have it, six months later, in June of the same year, The Dark Knight Rises premiered, and in Aurora, Colorado, a man named James Holmes shot up the movie theater, killing many, many people in the wake of his gunfire. And the story that reverberated after that event was that three boyfriends had shielded their girlfriends during the attack and saved their lives, dying in the process. And everyone that heard those stories were so moved as witnesses shared what they had seen that night, universally praised. The same year, the act of brave men who had laid down their lives for their girlfriends was universally praised. And as we hear these two stories today, I'm sure all of us can say deep down we know that whether or not we would have acted that same way, there's something inherently right or good about a man laying down his life for the woman in his life. And yet, we bristle at that same thought because we live in a culture where men sometimes abuse their power to hurt and to subjugate women. If you're following the news, you know for the past couple of years, now it's in trial, Harvey Weinstein, and the many women that he uses power to hurt and to take advantage of. And so we're, we, we struggle to think about wanting men to lead in any sort of way because we think about what men in power have done. In similar ways, if you look at the history of the church, including the Gospels, you see that Christianity and Christ has always elevated women far more than the surrounding culture ever has. And wherever Christianity goes, women experience new freedoms. And yet, if we're honest, the passage that's being preached today has hurt women. Women have been hurt by the way it's been taught and the way that it's been lived out. And so we come to this morning's passage that's fraught with all these landmines. And so I just want to share two thoughts as we jump in. One, it, is it possible that you might not have heard this passage taught correctly? And maybe the issues you bring to it might not be what the, te the text is actually saying. And then the second thing, which is maybe harder to hear, is think about what we've heard in this book the last couple of weeks, right? Our bodies are not our own. Our possessions can't save us. Um, the, the things that we earn in our work should be used to bless others. The Bible is full of very difficult truths to embrace, and might this be another instance where our culture and our wisdom bucks up against God's wisdom? And so let's come to the text with humility. Um, I'm going to dive in. I'm going to read actually a couple of verses that Pastor Pete preached on because they actually directly tie into this. But we're going to be looking at um, 
starting at verse 18, if you have your Bibles. This is God's word from Ephesians 5. And do not get, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word, and all God's people say, Amen. Amen. So first, before we dive into the text, it's important to see that what we're hearing here is directly tied to verses 18 and 19, where Paul is commanding believers to be filled with the Holy Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. For the next, next week when Pastor Tom preaches and he speaks about families, all of these commands that Paul is giving fall under that idea that this is what spirit-filled people look like in relationships. And this, in particular, is what spirit-filled people look like in marriage. And so it's important to know that everything that he's saying is actually falling under that previous verse. And we see, as he starts with wives, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. We immediately see that Paul is saying wives and husbands play different roles. But it's important to see that Paul is not making this up. And this is not some culturally laden thing. This is a distinction that he's reminding the church was there at the beginning. You see, from the beginning, God designed men and women to image him, but you image him in unique ways. And so if you look at the creation account, right, God creates man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. From the beginning, man, woman, equally made in the image of God. And then when God commands the first people, right, to be fruitful and multiply and subdue creation, they're both given the same commands together, both of them, to be fruitful, to subdue. But they can't fulfill that first command without each other. They can't be fruitful and multiply without both sexes, equal and yet complementary. They need both to be together in order to accomplish what God desires. But at creation, God has given the husband and the wife unique roles in relation to each other. Remember that after God calls all that he has made good, after all these days of creation, the first time he says there's something wrong with his creation is that the man is alone. And so he makes Adam a suitable helper. 
And that word is so fraught with cultural baggage. I don't know how many women are in here that feel that that sounds inherently demeaning. Your blood pressure starts to rise, a strong helper. And we all have words in our lives that make us react that way. I was thinking a lot about that this week. And for me, the word that I hate that's used to describe me is nice. I hate when people say I'm nice. And I've been called that all my life. And part of that is because every girl I was ever interested in that rejected me always said, oh, yeah, Chris, he's, he's so nice. You know? And so I immediately think that that's, uh, you know, I, I associate it with negative. Um, and yet at the same time, I don't even want to hear guys call me nice. I just don't like the word. But this week, I looked it up. And synonyms for nice are kind, pleasing, enjoyable. The word is actually not a bad word at all, right? But my response to it is tied to my experience of it. And the same is true with the Hebrew word for helper, ezer. One commentator said this, in English, help can refer to a simple, modest act, or it can refer to something much more vital and significant. In the Old Testament, it's used to describe military reinforcements in crucial battles. It's used to describe people and helping in a political alliance but most importantly, it refers to God as the one who helps and saves his people. If you notice, in the call to worship, one of the verses said, God is our help and our shield. That's the same word that's being used. And it's all over the Bible. Moses names his son Eliezer. And when he gives the explanation, he says, my father's God was my helper. God rescued me from slavery and from Pharaoh. And I want to name my son to remind me of the strong help that God is. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord is God. So in this way, wives are called to willingly and joyfully strengthen their husband where he's lacking. And if the picture in the Bible is one of military enforcements that turn the tide of a battle that would be lost otherwise, the picture we have here is a wife strengthening her husband so where he would lose alone, the two experience victory together. When I think about my own marriage to Courtney, there are so many times where if I would have spoken or acted on the way I was feeling without having her strong help to think through things, to see her perspective, we'd be in a very different place, not only in our marriage, but in my life. Courtney has constantly been a strong help to me. And when I think about as affectionate, I, you know, guys know me that I've been here, I like to give people hugs. I'm affectionate. I'm just that way with my children. But Courtney is a strong helper in the, in the wee hours of the night when I get up and I can't, with, with any of my reserves, be that warm, gentle person that I am during the day. I'll get up, but I'll kick something on the floor in our bedroom. I'll mumble nasty things under my breath. And yet, Courtney, as my strong helper, manages, even though she's exhausted, to pull up strength and reserves to really embrace our kids. And it's no accident that when they're upset, no matter how loving I am to them, the first one they want is Courtney. Mommy, hold me, hold me. <laughs> so if this is the way God designed the marriage bond, and we reject it, right, we're losing something in the process. And Kathy Keller puts it this way, if gender is part of our nature, we risk losing a part of ourselves if we abandon our distinctive roles. But she goes on to say, right, that the Bible is actually not very rigid in defining what those roles look like. In general, right, wives are more often encouraged to be supporters directly and more often to be nurturing children involved in the home life. But it's not very prescriptive. So what does it look like? Well, wives are called to encourage their husbands. 
One of my professors at Westminster, Kent Hughes, told the story, and then he actually recorded it in this book. Him and his wife wrote this book. And I found it so moving, because as somebody in ministry, I feel like everyone experiences these moments, sometimes mo more than once. He was ministering at a church, and he was depressed. The church was not doing well, and he wanted to quit. And he, in a moment of vulnerability, he shared with her the truth of how he's feeling. Listen to what he says. I found myself coming to the conclusion that I didn't want to admit, though I knew it had been brooding inside me for a t for time. Now I finally heard it coming out. God has called me to do something that he hasn't given me the gifts to accomplish. Therefore, God is not good. There, finally, I blurted out the thought that had tormented me. It fell between us ugly and misshapen into the silence of the hot night, and in aching desperation, I said to my wife, what am I to do? I was faltering, but I'll never forget her response. I don't know what you're going to do. But for right now, for tonight, hang on to my faith. Believe because I believe. I know God is good. I believe he loves us. And he's going to work through this. So hang on to my faith. I have enough for the both of us. It's powerful. This week, the men's group watched a documentary on um, Bono and Eugene Peterson talking about the Psalms. And it's a short documentary, and in a moment that could be a throwaway moment, we see Jan Peterson talking about her husband and the sacrifices they both made, but the sacrifices she made to encourage him to finish a translation of the Bible and how costly it was. And you get the sense as Eugene is looking at her, he's silent in this clip, that he, he, he knows that without her encouragement, without her sacrifice, it would have never gotten done. Bringing it down to earth at Grace Point, a lot of our wives are great on Father's Day at posting on Facebook and Instagram these glowing reviews of how amazing their husbands are. My husband is the best dad, the best this, the best that. But I don't see that every day throughout the year. I see that once a year. But there's one couple that I do see it consistently done. And so I asked them in advance if I could share this, but if you follow Stella on Instagram, she frequently, almost weekly, will post Jason cooking something or tinkering in the basement on some new invention. And she'll always encourage, like, look at, look at this awesome meal Jason made, or look, at, he's, look what the evil doctor is building in the basement, you know? And there's a, there's a warmth, there's an encouragement. So the question for the wives today is, do you encourage your husband? Or are you always finding faults. The marriage therapist who can predict within a minute of watching video without voices with 99% accuracy whether a couple is going to stay married or divorced has said that the ratio of positive to negative should be five to one. Five positive things to say to, to every negative. So some of our wives are thinking, yeah, 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 I can encourage, I can support. But what about this submission thing? What does that mean? Well, let me start by saying what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean the wife has to stay in the home. It doesn't mean she has to hang on every word her husband speaks. It doesn't mean she has, doesn't have a voice in the relationship or a voice in the decision-making process. It doesn't mean she's to be coerced or forced to do anything against her will. And to be honest, submission looks different in every situation. It's really hard to narrowly define. But broadly, it means because the husband is called to be the head in the relationship, he desires to submit to the will of Christ. So the wife willingly yields to her husband, who himself is yielding to God, yielding to God. 
And Ephesians gives us a picture in chapter 4. It says, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. As the people look to Christ, they lovingly follow his lead. And as wives desire to grow in knowledge and character in Christ, to be more like Jesus, they should be able to look to their husbands to point them to him. The wife, knowing that the husband wants them to know the Lord more, can follow his lead. So one of the most famous examples I got to hear told in person is between Kathy and Tim Keller. They talk about how there have been very few times where Kathy has had to submit in, in a very literal way. But when they were deciding about whether or not to leave Pennsylvania and go to New York, they really struggled to make the decision and had a lot of positives and negatives about staying or going. And at the end of all of their prayer and all their dialogue, she ended up saying, I trust you. Where should we go? I'll go where you, where you want to go. And Redeemer was born. I asked, I, I, a lot of women helped me with this sermon, just so you know. So my wife, um, Kathy Keller, one man, and then a lot of wives who will remain nameless shared very intimate things. And I'm going to share an example from one of our couples at Grace Point of submission. She said, an early genetic testing during pregnancy showed questionable results. And I got the, the scary call from the OB. And the husband and I talked about what we would do if we had a child with needs. And my mind went to the, the darkest places and I, I thought about terminating the pregnancy. He matter-of-factly said, no matter what happens, we're going to keep this baby. This calmed me and submitting in the scenario was a blessing. Courtney had a lot of draws to go to California and in all of our prayer together and in knowing me earnestly wanting to seek what God had for us, she chose to trust me and stay here. So women, maybe this is not naturally you. Maybe you're strong-willed. You don't like taking feedback from others. You don't follow in any area of your life. Well, these are things to nurture and strengthen. Don't cast them aside just because they don't fit your personality. Take encouragement from your other sisters. Take encouragement from what Christ calls us to. And when wives live this way, they uniquely point their husband and the community to Christ. Because Christ was the ultimate example of submission to another. The ultimate Ezer, equal with God in every way, but didn't grasp at the power and the luxury that came with being God. He willingly submitted to his father's plan, made himself subject to God's plan, willingly died and suffered to save us. And wives, as however imperfectly you serve as strong helpers, right? You point us to the one who alone was and is and always will be the strong helper that we need. Husbands, the bad news is that while three and a half verses are addressed to women, eight and a half are to the husbands and all focus on love. And again, as Paul's moving to husbands, he's not being creative. He's not being cultural. He's sharing what God intended from the beginning. Because if you go back to Genesis, right, it's from Adam that God makes the first woman. And Adam is the source of her creation. And then God names all of the things that he makes. He names the day. He names the night. He names the dry land. And then he gives man authority to name the creatures. And Adam names his strong helper not once but twice. First woman at the wedding. And then Eve after the curse. And this points to his headship in the relationship. 
But like one commentator said, headship is not synonymous with tyranny. We see headship play out in the garden because God approaches Adam, right? The Lord God called to Adam and said, where are you? This is striking, right? Eve eats the fruit first, but Adam is held accountable. Adam was supposed to protect and to intervene and to crush the serpent's head, and yet he failed. And although Eve is the one who brings new life into the world, original sin is not passed on through her. It's passed on through Adam. Adam's failure is the source of original sin. And so men are called to be the head, to be Christ-like in our leadership. And that calls us back to Ephesians again for clarity, because Paul says God gave Christ to be head. He says in in chapter 1, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. Kathy Keller says, husbands are more directly and more often exhorted to lead, to provide for, and to protect the family. And so if the head gives life to the body, we're to give life to our wives. And so how do we do that? Well, in these eight and a half verses, the husband is repeatedly called to love his wife. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So how did Christ love the church? Well, if you remember when we went through the book of Acts, right, Saul is persecuting and killing Christians, and Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus. And what does he say when he confronts Saul? He says, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? Right? Because Christ so identifies with his body that anything that happens to one of his people is happening to him. And so loving our wives means protection, means caring for our wives because we're one with them. United. When she's hurt, you're hurt. An attack on her is an attack on you. And when attacked, you desire to protect her and defend her. It's servant leadership. Jesus stooped down and washed the feet of the disciples, something only slaves did. Loving means casting out our desires and wants. It's making ourselves small, serving our wives. Remember, Jesus said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. In Jesus' kingdom, the first are last and the last are first. Great leaders stoop down and humbly serve. And this is how we're supposed to lead our wives. One commentator said, authority is not the right to rule, it's the responsibility to serve. It's sacrificial love, right? Jesus died for the church. Husbands are so much to treasure our wives, right, that we're willing to give up our comfort to care for our wives. I don't know how many of you know, but two of our couples are dealing with significant family issues right now. Uh, Song and Danielle. Song's, um, Danielle's mom had a stroke, and her parents have moved in with them. And chung mom has been very, very ill, and over the holidays, she moved in with Richard and chung And as these daughters have tried to lovingly sacrifice and care for their parents, the husbands have had to lay down their comfort to welcome in family members. And we all know even in the holidays when we host family members, it's stressful. That's what sacrificial love looks like. Power in the service of the other, not to please oneself, is how Kathy Keller puts it. In addition to sacrificial love, the husband is called to love and serve the wife in how he speaks to her. So verse 26 says, right, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, presenting to the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. 
Now, first, don't get confused by this language, right? We do not sanctify our wives, right? We do not cleanse them from sin. This is referring to the previous verse where it's talking about what Christ has already done, right? Now, God might use us, right? We might be used by God as he sanctifies us, but the sanctification work is done by Jesus. And so this is referring to what Christ has already done, but it does mean that part of our care for our wives is on how we speak to them. It's a word-based ministry. And he uses this powerful image from the ancient world of how a wife was being prepared for marriage, hand-bathed, washed with the water, cleansed before her wedding day, a shining bride appearing before her husband for the first time. And he uses this image and he couples it with the word of God, but specifically to the word that cleanses, which is the gospel. Because remember, Jesus says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. The word that makes us clean is the word of Christ to us, that in him we're forgiven and made new. This should flow from our lips as we love and serve our wives, reminding them who they are. Women are constantly bombarded with messages in our culture, ads that communicate their meaning and their worth, always by external standards, right? Lean in. Your value is how you face the workforce, right? The Peloton ad, the husband giving the wife the bike, right? Are you looking good? Are you fit? Are you a good mom? Are you fit enough? Are you thin enough? And we're supposed to wash our wives with the only word that cleanses, the gospel word that our wives are precious. As Christ's work makes us holy and blameless and spotless and without blemish, we're to serve our wives to encourage their growth. So husbands, do you encourage your wife to be in the word? Do you remind them of the gospel when they forget who they are? Do you pray for them? And men, if this is not naturally you, if you're passive or you avoid stepping up, you want your wife to make the decisions, then these are things to strengthen and nurture. Look to brothers who are struggling to do this for encouragement. As we come to the end of the passage, Paul is tying his thinking all together in verse 32. He says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. As Paul's encouraging husbands and wives, he's repeatedly pointed to Christ and the church. And he ends by saying this again. But it's, it's all over the passage, right? From the first verse, he says, husbands, what does it say right here? He says, uh, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, now, we know Paul does not think that there's more than one Lord. He's not saying husbands are Jesus, right? He's saying that marriage is pointing to something bigger. It's pointing to Christ and his church. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for verse 29, just as Christ does to the church. So while husbands and wives image Christ in distinct ways to one another, right? The larger image is Christ and his relationship to his people. At the first marriage in Eden, God made two people into one. Unified, unity, new creation. Something different than prior to the marriage. And Paul's saying something amazing. He's saying that marriage was created to be a picture of God's relationship to his people. And this image is all over the Bible. In the book of Ezekiel, God speaks about the history of Israel. And the image that he uses is one of him marrying his people. And it says in six, chapter 16, I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a crown on your head. 
And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. This is marriage language. I'm marrying you. And it goes on, actually, to get really dark because Israel has rebelled. And he's saying, I love you anyway, even in your rebellion. And I'm going to wash you and I'm going to stick by you. Jesus constantly refers to himself as the bridegroom in the Gospels, right? So marriage points to God making a new people for himself. Washed by the blood of the Lamb. Filled with the Holy Spirit. New creation. People in darkness separated from God, yet through Christ's submission, through his sacrifice, right, through his obedience, God made a new people for himself with new hearts, forgiven and reconciled to him. People made holy and forgiven. Even though we continue to struggle and fall short every day, Christ still loves us and we remain united to him. And so when marriages are spirit-filled, and we're loving one another, and we're putting the other person's needs before our own, wives trusting their husband's leadership, husbands putting their wives first, two people demonstrating grace and forgiveness. We're displaying to the world and to the church what we've been shown by God in Christ. The world says marriage is about having my needs met, right? And yet Christian marriage says spouses are growing together into the image of Jesus, seeking the other person's flourishing, dying to themselves, putting one another, pointing one another to God. And, you know, when couples live in this spirit-filled way, we tangibly experience God's love and grace in the bad times and in the good times, right? Because think about sin. In the safety of marriage, we're supposed to be able to be completely vulnerable and over time, our wives and our husbands, they see the worst about us. And yet because of that covenant, right, they're able to extend in a safe place forgiveness. I know how messed up you are, and yet I still love you and I forgive you. And we experience the grace that God has given us in Christ with our partners. In the, in the flip side, in the good, right, we're able to delight in our spouses and celebrate and care for them. And in those moments, we get to experience tangibly how much Christ delights and cherishes and loves us, albeit imperfectly. We have this covenant that says, I'm going to stand by you no matter what. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to stick with you. I'm going to delight in you. God's making us something new. We're one. That points to our oneness with Christ. Now you're saying, this is, this is impossible. It's impossible. You don't know my wife. You don't know my husband. How can I follow his lead? Right? Or how can I die to my needs for her? Well, the first thing that's hard to hear is that Paul speaks about marriage a lot. And Peter does too. And they don't say to husbands, only serve your wives if she's following you. They don't say to wives, only follow his lead if he's dying for you. We're called to live spirit-filled lives despite the difficulties. Paul is urging us to submit out of reverence to Christ. But often our fear of what the wider world would say or our fear of what would happen in our marriages keeps us from following Christ's lead. But we can't avoid the obvious either, right? We respond, it's hard to live like this because we're still sinners. We still sin. We're still under the curse. And the curse works itself out in our marriages in profound ways. Remember, to Adam, right, God said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it, thorns and thistles that shall bring forth from you. 
Because of the curse, right, men's work requires sweat and toil, and it rarely ends and gives us the results in the work that we put into it. And so bitter work makes bitter husbands. And we come home and we end up lashing out at our wives because of what we're frustrated at in our work, right? We, we can control, we'll control this because we can't control anything else. And we become domineering. Or, depending on our personalities, or even some of us do both of these things, right? We become so disheartened, so discouraged by our work, so frustrated that we end up just becoming disillusioned. And when we come home, we're detached. We don't want to lead. We want to just sit and experience the peace and joy of serving ourselves. Our wives become a burden. Wives, under the curse of being contrary to their husbands, right, desire complete control. Some brave sisters emailed me, and one sister said, as the wife, you want to control everything. You want to take the lead. We want all the power. But then we resent the spouse for not pulling equal weight. And then when the spouse wants to take over, we criticize or resent the way that they did it. It's a lose-lose. Another sister wrote, poor communication ends up leading to unmet expectations. So I take control to make sure my needs are met, and then my husband gets mad because he feels like I'm dominating him. This beautiful picture, right? But we fail every day to live it out. And that's why it's a picture, right? All analogies fall short, and it, it's a picture. It's a representation of something. But we have to remember, marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his people, but it's not the same thing. And when we put pressure on our spouses to be Christ, they will always disappoint us. We're placing expectations on them that they can't fill. And we need to look to the one who loves us perfectly, who knows us completely, better than our spouses will ever know us. Have you ever thought about how you really don't know your spouse? I've, I've thought about this a lot because I think we tend, over time, right, we think we can predict what our wife or our husband's going to do. But if we're really honest, they can always surprise us, for good and for bad. And I'm going to share just a good one. Over the holidays, we went to a, a karaoke party, and Courtney got up there and sang Lizzo's new rap song. And she killed it. And I know that Courtney is a good singer. I didn't know she was a good rapper until that moment. But Courtney surprises me. She surprises me. I remember when we were dating, and she was jumping on this um, huge trampoline, an outdoor trampoline. She's doing these backflips and front flips, and I'm like, who is this girl? Like, I can't believe she can do those things. And yet, as much as we know or don't know, right, Christ knows everything about us. He knows ourselves better than we know ourselves, and he still loves us, despite all of our flaws. One sister wrote, conflict only resolves when I realize that the other person can't love me like Christ, and we should look to Jesus and know I'm loved by him. When our ship was sinking, right, Christ drowned under the weight of our sins so that we could float to the shore. When we should have gone before the firing squad, executed as enemies of God for our sins, Jesus stood in front of us and took every bullet in our place. When Adam failed to crush the head of the serpent, Jesus took the blows on the cross, defeating Satan so that we could be his, willingly laying down all of his rights, all of his privileges for you and I. 
He took the fall so we could walk free. There's a couple of warnings. This passage is for husbands and wives. We're not called to these role relationships in every aspect. You're not called to submit in this way to your boss, right? You're not called to die to every woman in your life. These are distinct in this relationship. Two, what if my spouse is not a believer? Well, you're actually called to live out this design, even if they're not, to the point of not sinning. If your spouse is calling you to do something that would jeopardize what you know God calls you to do, then that's where it stops. But if they're willing to be with you in this relationship, you're called to live out this design. What if you're not married? I hope you see that from the creation account, men and women should be together. One brother in the men's group said, I didn't want to come here because I kind of like hanging out with women. And, and, I, and I, I totally get what he was saying, right? Because there's something about being in a growth group with men and women that's enriching. It's enriching in a different way than it is when all the women are together and all the men are together. And so we need to have men and women be friends. And that applies to us whether you're married or not. And if you're not, remember that what marriage points to, Christ's relationship to his people, even if you're married, not married, you have that. You have what the picture points to. Husbands, try taking the initiative. Plan dates. Pray for your wives. Invite them in. Speak the gospel to them. Drown out the other voices that they hear. Wives, encourage your husbands, especially when they take the initiative. Right? Don't, don't get into that temptation to be frustrated about the way it didn't work out the way you wanted it to. And pray for them. And then know that no matter how many times you fall short, Christ remains all of our faithful hands. The only source of life. The one who loves us perfectly. The one who's forgiven us. Let's turn to him together and experience that love so we can love each other better.